The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really great discussion on guided bronchoscopy for pulmonary lesions. Today, as our guest, we are fortunate to have Dr. Silvestri, the senior author of this CHEST publication, entitled Guided Bronchoscopy for the Evaluation of Pulmonary Lesions and Updated Meta-Analysis. Dr. Silvestri, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Dr. Gerard Silvestri from the Medical University of South Carolina. I'm the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology here at the Medical University. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Gerard. Um, this is a very timely, um, updated systematic review and meta-analysis, and we're really excited to see this publication in CHEST. So maybe for the benefit of our audience, we can start off by asking the obvious question of why do we perform guided bronchoscopies, and why do we do this instead of performing a CT-guided needle biopsy uh, for lung nodules? That's a good question. I, I, I think it's not an either-or. I think it's a both-end. Um, so bronchoscopy has been utilized uh, since the 70s, um, and flexible bronchoscopy initially started out as just uh, you know, uh, transbronchial biopsies or bronchoalveolar lavage. Over time, over the past uh, 20 to 25 years, uh, there's been this uh, explosion of different ways to get more uh, distally and to get a higher diagnostic yield from bronchoscopy. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to both um, guided bronchoscopy, which includes electromagnetic navigation, peripheral ultrasound, CT-guided mapping, um, et cetera, and now robotics, which is sort of the new kid on the block. Um, if you look at the differences between guided bronchoscopy as a general rule and transthoracic needle aspirate, transthoracic needle aspirate has a sensitivity that's a bit higher, a diagnostic yield somewhere in the 90% range, although it can drop down depending on where the lesion is. The trade-off is that it has about a 15% pneumothorax rate of which 6% require a chest tube. Guided bronchoscopy has a lower yield, um, but the uh, but the pneumothorax uh, rate is much lower at around 2%. Choosing which one of those is better um, really gets at a patient selection uh, issue, and it's something we talk about um, in this manuscript discussion section about, you know, whether it's technique, how, how well is the person trained, what their volume is, technology, is this technology uh, better at uh, getting a yield? Any of the technologies mentioned in the meta-analysis. And then patient selection. Are you picking the right patient? And so we can imagine a patient that has a very small lesion, very close to the pleural surface, 
might be uh, better suited to have a transthoracic needle aspirate. Um, you don't go through much lung to get to it, and the yield is very high, as opposed to a quite central uh, lesion where an airway uh, goes right to it. Those are those are the differences, and I and I think the field has to get their arms around which they choose for what. Uh, it's not an either or. Gotcha. And then you alluded to the fact that most of these lung nodules tend to be peripheral. Uh, they tend to occur more in the upper lobes than the lower lobes. Um, and one of the benefits of doing bronchoscopy is that you can also stage the mediastinum, um, which you can't do uh, with CT-guided needle biopsy. Maybe you could comment on that. Yes, yeah, so that's a, a good point. And uh, there have been investigators that have looked at uh, the utility of doing a staging uh, endobronchial ultrasound at the same time as a guided bronchoscopy. Uh, and, and somewhere in the 5 to 10% range, they'll find an, uh, a, 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 a metastatic mediastinal lymph node. I would say two things about that. First is uh, the, the yield for that is generally very low. Um, we, uh, especially if you have a negative CT and PET in the mediastinum, um, and, and so that, so that's one thing. And, you know, if you, if you, if you are going after something that might be benign, then it's not really that useful at all. So I think, again, that's a trade-off. I, I do see the logic of thinking about doing a staging EBIS and, and going after the nodule at the same time. But if the, uh, EBIS is negative, which 90 plus percent of the time it will be, then uh, you're depending on the yield of whatever you get in the periphery. So you may be looking at a second procedure. With that background in mind, uh, Dr. Silvestri, why did you perform this systematic review and meta-analysis? There was one done, I think, 10 years ago that your team performed. Why do you think it needed to be updated? Yeah, so the meta-analysis was, uh, you know, started with data from 20 years ago. And so the first 10 years of data was uh, was in the books. And we, at that time, had about 3,000 patients and 39 studies. And then we saw explosion of this technology and increased utilization of the technology uh, over the past 10 years. And, and so a colleague of mine uh, and I were sitting in the office, um, and she recommended that we we think about updating the meta-analysis, uh, particularly because of the uh, new introduction of robotics, but also um, because there was just a lot more out there in the literature. And to be fair, we want to be a little bit more rigorous about around this meta-analysis uh, to look at the quality of the studies that we use both in the first one and the second one. So we did the second meta-analysis thinking, okay, we have now 10 more years. So now we're over two decades of experience. We've added an additional 13,000 cases. So there were 3,000 or so in the first, now 13,000 uh, or more cases and 87 new studies. And uh, so that, that was one of the reasons we also went back and looked at the quality of the studies um, from both the first and the second meta-analysis to see if you know quality of studies made a difference. Great. And then maybe before we jump into your methods, you could uh, comment a bit on diagnostic yield, because this seems to be um, a term that uh, people interpret differently, and there seem to be several uh, definitions. And depending on what definition of diagnostic yield that one uses, um, one can significantly inflate uh, one's ability to perform these procedures and the success of the procedure. I mean, it also seems to depend on background cancer rates in which patients are enrolled into these studies. Yeah, yes, this is the absolute um, new and I think 
controversy is putting it mildly. Um, I, I do think that uh, the study published by Vachani and L, which looked at uh, how you uh, how you define diagnostic yield, and so some people were talking about things like sensitivity of malignancy, which of course would be higher if the prevalence of malignancy in the cohort you're looking at is higher. But that's not really diagnostic yield. Um, and so the strict definition is, you know, actually, let's let's step back and say, what would what would you say to a patient three days after you get the results of the bronchoscopy? If you say to the patient, I know what this is, this is just sort of a global view of this, right? That's diagnostic yield. If you say, you know, we didn't actually get it, but I don't think it's cancer and we're going to follow it, that's something different. If you get a specific benign diagnosis, that's something different. And then there's some vagaries. One of the vagaries being inflammation. If you get inflammation, then of course, sometimes inflammation is related to infectious etiologies and uh, we don't often grow organisms. If you get inflammation and, and then a year, and so you're going to consider that a benign bronchoscopy and a year goes by and you get a, uh, a follow-up CT scan and either the lesion's gone um, and, or stable, then I think that was a reasonably diagnostic bronchoscopy. So it depends on how conservative your definition of yield is, um, how much follow-up you do. Um, I think cancer is easy, right? It says this is cancer. What do you do if, if you have atypical cells on your biopsy? Um, is that a diagnostic? In fact, it's not. We can see atypical cells in, in, in areas of inflammation, um, and in, in areas of infection. And, and so we, we, we shouldn't, depend on atypical, that's not diagnostic. And in some studies, they use that as a diagnostic yield, and, and we, don't, we don't favor that definition. Um, there is a, 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 a guideline coming out that uh, will address this issue and sort of really set the standard for um, what constitutes a diagnostic yield. And that's really important because uh, at present it's very difficult to compare these different studies because they're using different definitions. And I think your paper really highlights uh, the challenge that we're facing. So with that in mind, maybe you could just quickly overview um, your study methods. How did you perform your systematic review and meta-analysis? And how did it address uh, these limitations that you've mentioned already? Yeah, so we did a few things. We used general meta-analytic te technique. So we put in the keywords, uh, guided bronchoscopy, electromagnetic navigation, peripheral ultrasound, um, and, and, and the others. And with those keywords, we used the initial same keywords we used for the initial meta-analysis years ago, and then also added in robotic bronchoscopy as another keyword. Um, and we came out with something like 4,000 articles, and then you go through um, those initial articles, you, you take out review articles, you take out duplicates where they published, for example, a, a study and then updated it later on. And if that was the case, we took the most recent study. Um, and then we made, uh, we looked at abstracts for all of those and then continually eliminated till we got down to the study that really fit the criteria. They had definitions, they had a yield. Um, we were either able to calculate it uh, by their, uh, by what they put in their papers so that we can get down to a, a true diagnostic yield. The other thing we did was something we hadn't done in the first paper, which was um, we uh, used a Quadus II uh, score, which, which can be used for different types of studies, uh, and we modified it to make sure it, it was uh, apropos for this study. And that looked at st studies where we could grade them as 
high level of bias versus a low level of bias. Um, our hypothesis being that the studies at a high bias would have a, a higher yield and the studies with low bias, sort of the strict definition studies that had all the outcome data that you needed, uh, would, would have a, a, a lower yield. And that, of course, is exactly what we found. Um, we, uh, we did have two separate reviewers do the Quadras 2 score. And in, in cases where there was uh, disagreement, we had a third reviewer um, adjudicate those. And so we, we came to consensus on the high versus low bias studies. And then after that, we went on to uh, do a, uh, do a, um, uh, the yield by different uh, parameters, by the different technologies, by the size of the lesion, um, and by the presence or absence of a, um, a, a bronchus sign. And so that was generally the methods. And, and we, we used the true sort of meta-analytic technique that's in the literature. Gotcha. So just two clarifying comments. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, um, that you did include the search term robotic bronchoscopy because I think the current version of the manuscript in Table 1 doesn't mention robotic bronchoscopy. So you'll actually, to clarify, you'll did add that as a uh, mesh term or a search term? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then the second question was... Um, this uh, the systematic review was performed until April 2021, um, and then you'll submitted the manuscript October 2022. Uh, it looks like you did include one uh, study, I think the Navigate study, which provided updated data. But what would you comment to um, uh, reviewers who would say, you know what, uh, we're missing data from 2022, um, and uh, quite a number of those studies are robotic studies. Uh, did you Do you need to do, perform an updated systematic review? Um, are we missing any studies? Of course, you're always going to be missing studies. Um, I would, I would say that we keep a very close eye on the robotic studies, and currently there are. I don't think that there are many in the literature that would have qualified um, for this study. So I don't think we missed much. Uh, there's a lot okay. coming out, and a lot of it is I don't think uh, as ready for prime time. Uh, that would be sort of high-quality studies that would have been included in the meta-analysis. Okay. So let's jump into um, your key findings. Um, what did you find with your systematic review and meta-analysis, and how did you interpret it? Yeah, so the first finding was, you know, after uh, after 10 more years and the addition of 13,000 or so more cases, the yield has not changed one bit, right? So it was 70% before. It was 69% after. There's no statistical significant difference there. Um, importantly, it was 65% if you used sort of a low bias studies. And so I wonder if we shouldn't set that as the benchmark um, for what the yield that can be expected in, in uh, guided bronchoscopy. And so that, I think, is one of the absolute major findings. You've added thousands and thousands of cases, triple the number of cases, uh, you know, quadruple the number of cases. You um, uh, added uh, a significant number of studies, and so 87 new studies. Um, and, and yet, the, the yield from bronchoscopy over that time hasn't changed. There's no difference in, in outcome based on the type of technology. And then another uh, two, I think, important points uh, are that um, the size of the lesion really makes a significant difference. And so what we see is a 20% uh, improvement in diagnostic yield based on size. 
Um, so it's a uh, it's a 58% yield, uh, I mean, 62%, excuse me, for nodules less than two centimeters versus about an 80% yield for nodule size greater than two centimeters. And so, um, and then again, uh, for bronchocyne uh, present, it's about a 78% yield and bronchocyne absent, 51% yield. So those two things are very strong predictors of uh, diagnostic yield. And again, I think that would argue later on for uh, how we select patients. So you can imagine something less than two centimeters and close to the pleural surface would have a, a low expected yield from guided bronchoscopy. Yeah, that is pretty concerning um, that uh, over the last uh, 20 years, there's been no significant change um, in the yield, and uh, your study came back at 70%. In your um, findings or your the discussion, you do mention that um, the robotic bronchoscopy is a pretty new technology and that you did have a small sample size of, I think, 483 patients. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, so, um, you know, we looked at uh, that. Um, you know, again, it had a slightly higher um, yield, which may or may not be true with more patients, but statistically, it was no different. Um, I, I, I really think that the that the jury is out on robotic bronchoscopy. It's a newer technology. Uh, we are doing it here. Um, we are one of the studies in the meta-analysis, so I do have experience with it. Um, I do think that um, there is cause for optimism, um, but I think we need to wait and see. Um, this is a new technology. We've, we've, we've seen this come and go in the past through other technologies. Um, you know, and I do think that there'll be improvements in this technology as well, but I'm just not ready yet to sign off on uh, this. And look, if, if, if I was, I would have to basically ignore the fact that for 20 years with multiple different other technologies that were touted as um, having very high diagnostic yields, um, when they first came out, uh, we saw them regress to the mean as time went on. Um, if, if I'm going to believe that data, I have to take pause with this data. Does that mean I'm anti-robot? No. Does that mean I'm uh, fully for the robot? No. It means I'm cautiously optimistic, but I need more data uh, for, for me to be uh, more definitive about that technology. Yeah, that's very true. We have seen a lot of technologies come out in the past where, as you said, regression to the mean has showed that they haven't been as beneficial as they initially were thought. Um, you presented these findings at the CHEST meeting in 2022, um, and in interestingly enough, there was another abstract presented at the same time uh, by Pierre Ali, who they performed a meta-analysis of robotic bronchoscopy, and they found slightly different results. Um, they included 12 articles of 1,065 patients instead of 480 patients, which you all had, and they had a diagnostic yield of 85% compared to yours of 77%. Uh, what would you say is different? Why do you think you'll get different results? Um, because I don't think the papers that were included in there were strictly uh, defined diagnostic yield. Uh, I, I just, I just think, uh, I, I, I think the investigators did the best job that they could. But I, I think um, if the follow up for those patients weren't a year, and they called them benign because there was inflammation. 
uh, you can see inflammation on the outside of a cancer. If the if the uh, if they were looking at sensitivity for uh, malignancy, the yield would be higher in a high prevalent uh, cancer episode. So I I I I. I don't discount the meta-analysis. I just think it depends on how you defined yield. And I don't think yield was defined in the same way as in that meta-analysis as it was in ours. Gotcha. And then there are several big studies coming out. Um, uh, there's the, for, for, for both robotic studies, there's the precise uh, trial as well as the, which is by Intuitive Ion, and then the target trial by Monarch Oris. And I think each study is going to be recruiting uh, I think 365 patients and 1,200 patients, respectively. What would you want them to ensure occurs in their publication so that uh, the data um, is generalizable and accurate and uh, would be meaningful? Yeah, so we're we're part of the uh, target trial. um, And I think what any company, and I think we need to be agnostic to the company, um, they have to have strict definitions of what is diagnostic yield, how they calculated that. Um, I think uh, if they present only things like sensitivity and malignancy, that is not, uh, it's not serving the, um, not serving the clinician very well. Um, I think it's incredibly important for investigators to, that are involved in those trials to stay detached as far as they can from the company um, I think there has to be independent review by investigators um, that review the pathology findings and the clinical findings um, and not not have those persons be, you know, for example, company uh, people. Um, we have to we have to be strict about how we publish this data going forward. Um, I, I think it's incredibly important. I also would like to see in all of these papers um, uh, logistic regression or prediction of yield by different parameters, right? So site, location, size, uh, those types of things. The other thing I would I would uh, urge us all to start to think about is other endpoints that are important to patients. How many patients have salvage uh, procedures done? Um, how many? Uh, how, what is the cost of these tests? Um, the other thing I think we need to be cognizant of is that um, it's not a single technology, right? So this is not just the robot. We also have a robot with navigation. And then we're, you know, most of the cases are being done with peripheral ultrasound to document that the lesion's in place. They're all done under general anesthesia. Um, so there are different costs and different uh, layering of technology upon each other. Again, that's not to say that d- we shouldn't be uh, exploring and using this technology. Um, the world is moving to a less and less invasive uh, place. Um, but but I do think we have to keep all those things in mind as we review this literature. We just have to be, um, you know, we just have to be critical readers of the literature as it comes out. Oh, definitely. And uh, I think to date, there have probably been about 40,000 of these robotic bronchoscopies performed in the United States. So we need to, as you said, um, have very strict definitions and a clear data showing a benefit. Um, Gerard, there are no perfect studies. Um, uh, even in your systematic review, there will be certain limitations. What would you want uh, the readers of your article and the audience to be aware of um, 
in terms of key limitations of your study where you could have done things better? Uh, what do you want them to be mindful of when they read your paper? Yeah, so, you know, the study had limitations. Some reported diagnostic yield in best and worst case scenarios based on strict and liberal inclusion criteria. And this idea of nonspecific inflammation was used in some of the yield calculations. We did select stricter criteria, and so that might have affected uh, and been a more conservative estimate of yield. Um, And then studies could have been classified as high risk of bias because the length of follow-up was not documented after nonspecific inflammation was reported. So if those studies had just reported it at a year um, so that we knew that it was a a, a benign bronchoscopy, they would have gone into the low risk of bias pool. Um, We excluded non-English speaking articles, so we might have eliminated uh, very good research from other countries that doesn't publish in English language. Um, and we we didn't really focus uh, our technologies on adjuncts, and so um, now one of the uh, one of the things that's popping up in the literature is cone beam CT to localize lesions. We we did not uh, focus on adjuncts. We focused on the initial technology, um, and so you know there were five studies on that used cone beam CT. Um, as an imaging tool, um, we, we, we didn't separate those out. We, we, there was just not enough data to formally review them for inclusion um, in, this, uh, in this meta-analysis. And what would you say to folks who would say, you know, uh, I'm going to use any tool possible to make sure um, I get my, um, uh, at the tip of the bronchoscope to uh, the lesion of interest, and if that includes cone beam CT or um, the different uh, fluoroscopic techniques, um, it benefits my patient to get the answers. So why not include those? I I would be okay with including them. I I think we have to start thinking about lots of other issues. So, right, if we include those, is is every uh, rural and even urban hospital um, or suburban hospital going to be able to uh, afford that? Is it going to add to radiation exposure for patients? Is it... um, is it going to be something that we should only do and regionalize our patients, which in some instances I think is absolutely the right thing to do and others it's not. And, and are we going to be leaving out patients who just can't afford to get there? Um, so I, I do think that we need to uh, understand that, you know, yes, we, we have this desire as pulmonologists. One of the things I think that attracted me and many others to pulmonary medicine is is our ability to use our hands and do bronchoscopy. Um, but there's a limit. Um, and I think, you know, ch- choosing the right test for the patient is important. Um, we're going to get more and more and more of these toys as time goes on. Um, the idea that we're benefiting our patients, though, um, you know, it, it just may not translate. And so I would say, yes, man, I love an, an aggressive interventional pulmonologist. And if they can have cone beam CT in a robot and they're really good and they do a lot of cases and their diagnostic yield is, you know, up above 80, 85 percent, I'm really proud of them and I root them for them. Uh, on the other hand, um, I see, uh, you know, five new lung cancers a week in my lung cancer clinic. Um, and if I have a patient with a one and a half centimeter nodule um, that's close to the pleural surface, I do not even think about doing a bronchoscopy in that patient. And we have all that technology and I hope we're pretty good at it by now. Um, that patient gets a needle biopsy. And I think that's where we have to 
acknowledge that our colleagues in interventional radiology can safely do this um, under local anesthesia uh, as an outpatient procedure with a high diagnostic yield and a relatively low uh, uh, risk factor uh, side effect profile. So that's where I, I come down on all of this, um, right, right procedure for the right patient at the right time. Yeah, I think you've come at a really important uh, point. Uh, this is not just a, it's not a toy. Um, it's a tool that's uh, designed to um, advance patient care and ensure uh, better patient outcomes. Maybe you can comment a bit more on uh, patient selection, not only for uh, research purposes, but also for um, the general care, because it seems as though, as, as you've alluded to before, um, if you choose patients that have a pretty certain diagnosis of lung cancer um, based on the characteristics of a lung nodule, um, you would increase the yield um, and the, your study results. Um, and conversely, if you um, went and performed these procedures on patients where there's less certainty that it's cancer and there's more likelihood of a infectious or an inflammatory component, something like um, LCH or LIP, um, you may end up with a non-diagnostic uh, case um, but the patient does have reassurance, uh, possibly that they don't have cancer. How are you going to? How would you go about selecting these patients, and what advice would you give to clinicians taking care of them? Um, you know, so I think the first thing that you really alluded to is what is the pretest probability of cancer? Um, if the pretest probability of cancer is really high, um, you're more likely to get a diagnosis. And we we published a paper um, a couple of years ago on the impact of clinical radiologic factors, procedure type, and the degree of suspicion of cancer. And what we found is that uh, your yield was much higher, the higher the physician pretest probability of cancer was. Um, your yield was much higher based on some patient characteristics. And so, uh, you know, for example, just to get the pretest probability of cancer, if, if your pretest probability uh, of cancer was less than 10% or 10 to 60%, your yield on bronchoscopy was 42 and 44%. And then if your pretest probability of cancer was greater than 60%, um, you would get a positive result in nearly 80% of the patients. It, interestingly, we also looked at the type of bronchoscopy. And of course, the highest yield by far was EBUS-TBNA, where larger lesions, where central lesions, um, were significantly associated with a higher diagnostic yield. Um, and, and, and this is in a, in, a, in, a, in a study where the prevalence of cancer was pretty darn uh, high. So what I would say to people is, look, if you have a central lesion with adenopathy, there's no better tool that's been introduced in my nearly 30-year career in bronchoscopy than linear endobronchial ultrasound. You have a high diagnostic yield and extremely low uh, risk of, uh, of side effects. And, and so, yes, of course, if you have a large central lesion, yes, of course. Um, if you have a high pretest probability of cancer, of course. And then as those things uh, dissipate, so peripheral small uh, lesions where you're going after them for a diagnostic bronchoscopy in a patient with a low pretest probability of cancer, maybe you shouldn't do the bronchoscopy at all. Uh, those patients, maybe observation is the key. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned about managing pulmonary nodules just clinically over uh, years and years of both studying nodules and working in my clinic with them is how to sit on my hands. I'm so willing to wait on somebody with a lower pretest probability, 10, 15% pretest probability of cancer, um, and wait and get a, a, a surveillance scan in three months. 
uh, as opposed to jumping right in. Um, I, I, I think that the radiologic features, um, the location, uh, per, particularly in the periphery of the lung and the size dictate how I'm going to go after those lesions clinically. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's a toss up and, and sometimes it's, oh my gosh, I should either watch and wait. Um, and by the way, in some patients, for example, with a very speculated upper lobe lesion, heavy smoker, 70 years old, he test probability of cancer, 85%, um, I might send them straight to surgery, uh, in, in that instance. And so there's all kinds of ways to manage these patients from surveillance to, bronchoscopy or needle biopsy to directly to surgery, depending on your suspicion of cancer and uh, the clinical characteristics of both the patient and the radiographic characteristics of the lesion. I don't know if that's a long-winded answer, but that's how I've, I've managed my folks. No, I mean, I mean the, 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 that's your personal approach. And um, there are other clinicians who have a slightly different approach where um, they've seen folks that they've monitored. And uh, by the time that they do the follow-up CAT scan at three months, um, it's progressed to a point where previously it was uh, surgically curable and now it's progressed to not being surgically curable and uh, they've seen patients die. Um, uh, subsequently, and, and I think you definitely raised the important point um, that there's no one size fits all, and I think we've definitely understood this in uh, the sepsis literature, um, and I think it, the, the same is playing out here. What would you comment to folks who would say, you know what, um, and, and we've seen this uh, nationwide, from the time a patient gets uh, a CAT scan until they see their pulmonologist, until they get their biopsy, until they see the oncologist or cardiothoracic surgeon, in some cases that can take up to uh, three months, uh, which is obviously unacceptable. Um, and there are some who will send patients to interventional radiology, and if uh, radiology is booked out and patients are waiting for four weeks for a diagnostic biopsy and then they need to get a staging procedure after that, that's contributing to delays in care. Um, some have said that these new procedures allow you to, within uh, three to four weeks, um, and in some cases they've been able to uh, get a diagnosis and surgery within two or three days. Are we going too far? Um, are we uh, uh, um, going too quickly with this technology in terms of uh, performing these procedures too quickly? Um, or are we delaying it too long, as happened in the past? What's your response to that? Um, yes. Yes to both. But let, let, let me go back, though. I do want to mention your one patient scenario that everyone dreads, which is this idea that um, a doctor's waited and then the patients had widely metastatic disease or locally advanced disease from a nodule. I, again, I've been doing this almost 30 years and see, you know, uh, you know four to five uh, suspicious new lung masses or nodules a week. Um, and in that 30 years, I can count on less than uh, a hand, less than one hand, less than five fingers, the times that I've seen in a three-month CT for a nodule go to uh, something that was uh, that was had hyaluronidopathy, for example. And in those cases, I suspect that that disease was present before that, if you if we know about the volume doubling time of these lesions, so I, I don't I, I I empathize with that situation. Um, I think it is wildly uncommon. Um, as to your uh, second question, um, 
I do think that uh, we really have to make an effort in our clinics, um, in our uh, in our uh, areas of practice, to move this situation along. Right in either direction. If you're going to choose surveillance, you have a plan. You you tell the patient we're going to look for. You know, you have a very low risk of cancer. We don't want to do anything that might harm you. Um, we're going to get a CT in three months and you'll get a visit that same day. You'll have your CT and come right to my clinic afterwards. We'll look at it together. We'll put them up side by side. We already have a plan. If it grows, you'll meet with a thoracic surgeon um, or we'll, we'll set up a biopsy. If we think there's a high suspicion of malignancy, um, you know, in our, in our clinic, we have a, a five working day. Uh, we'll get in any new highly suspicious lesion to our clinic. And then um, we try to uh, streamline that care to get them off to the operating room, if that's the case, or to a biopsy. Now, there's no perfect world here, um, but but I do think that you have to have systems in place. And I would say the most important, by far, the most important person in that is a nurse navigator. If you're able to have a nurse navigator in either in a cancer clinic or in your uh, office practice, that can help. Uh, streamline that. And one of the things that we do on more than a regular basis is that we um, we make sure that if there are key services that are not living up to expectation, like we can't get a PET scan for three weeks, no, 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 that's unacceptable. We do two things. We call and get the, the PET for our patient moved up, but then we'd start looking at what's the systematic problem with getting a PET scan. Do we need to leave the scan open a little later in the evening? Do we need a second scanner? Is it okay if we send it out to the community for uh, a PET scan? And that just requires communication. I would really leave you with one last thing. Um, in the whole sort of lifespan or spectrum of a cancer episode for a patient, you know, I always used to think that the most stressful time or most anxiety-provoking time for a patient was just before they died of their cancer. And in fact, that's actually not true at all. The most stressful time of uh, a cancer episode for a patient is between the time between they're told you might have cancer and they get their first treatment because of all the unknowns and all the uncertainty about uh, the diagnostic algorithms and the prognosis. And those patients, I mean, I think if you think about your own family members or others that have gone through a cancer episode, you, you might agree with that, that that is an extremely stressful time. And we try to uh, shorten that time as much as we can. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. That is a very stressful time, um, the, the not knowing, the waiting. Um, but also, the if you're telling patients, you know what, we can get a scan in three months, get a scan in six months, does that not prolong the waiting? Um, if you're able to sample that and uh, get an answer, does that not shorten the waiting and uh, decrease the stress? Yeah, so I, I think that, and this is why I think patient preferences are important, the first thing is you, you're telling them why you're waiting. And the reason that you're waiting is that you believe that this is a benign spot in their lung or a nodule, and that you believe that you would rather them not uh, go through an invasive procedure with a uh, risk of lung collapse, bleeding, et cetera. Um, and that, you know, uh, we have a plan for if this thing grows. I present that to the patient, and there are patients who say, look, doc, if you can't give me 100% certainty, I lost my grandfather to lung cancer, I need to have this biopsy. And in that case, I, I take patient preferences into account. Um, but for most patients, 95, 98% of patients, if you tell them you think this is truly benign, it actually relieves some of the stress that they have, and they're more than willing to wait the three months um, after if you 
if you sit there and explain to them your reasoning behind this, look, you've never smoked cigarettes. This is a, a lower, low, uh, small spot that's very well rounded. Um, we put it into the computer and the pretest chance that this is cancer is 3%. Um, you know, we don't want to put you through a biopsy that might harm you. Let's keep an eye on this. And that really, uh, in a lot of ways, decreases their stress from when they came into your office to begin with. Gotcha. And then in terms of what these what these new technologies offer us, I mean, it, it's initially as bold as uh, a means to expedite uh, cancer diagnosis. And obviously, um, there's a whole lot of other uh, conditions that are associated with lung nodules. What do you think clinicians will have to brush up on? And I guess also the uh, pathologists will have to brush up on in terms of understanding what uh, the data they're getting from these biopsies. Yeah, just I think we should remember that the the biopsies here are small biopsies. Many times it's needle biopsies, so cytologic biopsies, uh, as opposed to uh, um, forceps biopsies. You can get small forceps biopsies with these as well, um, but mostly it's needle biopsies. And so for malignancy, I think it's it's quite good, right? We we do cytologic biopsies with our uh, linear scope as well. So. Uh, I don't know that pathology has to brush up the one, the, the two areas that are a little bit unknown from uh, guided bronchoscopy, small needles, um, as opposed to EBIS, where it's very well known, is will we be able to get molecular uh, analysis? And so for those with advanced lung cancer, that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. You want to make sure that they have uh, the panel of mutations that we now have targeted agents for. And I'd also add that even earlier stage lung cancer, uh, we are looking for some of those targeted uh, agents. Uh, there was a large trial with patients uh, with EGFR that were positive tumors that were resected and then received adjuvant therapy. So knowing some of those details up front might be important. For benign disease, I think that the pathologist is going to have difficulty with needle biopsies, if you get granulomas and in the right situation, that's one thing. Um, I suppose if you get infectious uh, elements and have a culture, that's one thing. But for architecture, I don't think any of the guided methods are going to get a lot of architecture uh, for a pathologist to dig into. Um, so, so largely, we're talking about small specimens um, and uh, needle specimens. So there was a paper that came out recently that reviewed um, the different types of um, uh, biopsies that can be performed with guided bronchoscopies, and they reviewed needle aspirates, forceps biopsies, and cryobiopsies, and they found a significant difference um, in terms of um, volume of tissue that was acquired with needle biopsies. They got 200 microns with forceps, 1,000 microns, almost five times that much, and with cryobiopsies, you can get 2,000 microns of tissue, which offers a whole lot more tissue that's available um, for um, biopsy. I think it was published in lung. Um, is this the way of the future? We're getting a bigger sample using small uh, tissue samplers with the cryoprobes or forceps. Maybe that'll answer that question that I think you're posing. Um, do we have enough tissue to uh, get the answer that we need? And as we've always heard from pathologists, uh, tissue is the issue. If we don't give them enough tissue, they can't make a diagnosis. The answer is yes, and I've seen that study. Um, I think this cryobiopsy is a wildly interesting um, conceptual model, and there are going to be some studies coming up, uh, a large study looking at cryobiopsy 
uh, with a guide sheath. Um, the initial studies with cryobiopsy using a fairly sizable probe, you, you had to have uh, a bronchial blocker in place so that you could, uh, so that you could um, uh, observe them. And so those were mostly done on the rigid bronchoscopy and bleeding was an issue. But um, there is now a, a, a probe that can come inside a guide sheath and uh, initial studies suggest that you get a very high uh, um, yield and large tissue for these, and, and and it might be useful in things like transplant and and other areas. Um, I do think that that's worth really keeping an eye on. The other thing I would say, though, about pathology is, look, uh, for the mutational analysis, we're really looking for DNA. And so this idea that we need large volumes of biopsies to look at very, you know, microscopic uh, DNA um, is is a bit ludicrous. And so if you look at the studies uh, that have done six or more EBUS passes, um, you can get uh, 95% uh, yield using next generation sequencing. So um, that's a different use, but if you're looking for mutational analysis, EBUS with the number of passes will get what you need. I suspect that would work also for guided bronchoscopy. Um, we don't have as much data there as we do have for EBUS, but I think that data will probably come out uh, at some time in the future. So a small needle biopsies are just fine for uh, getting enough uh, tissue for analysis uh, for next generation sequencing. Um, I, I, I think pathologists have to learn to do more with less, um, and they are. Uh, you know, 50 gene panels, you don't need that much for a 50 gene panel. Um, so I, I think it depends on what you're looking for. If you need architecture, sure, I think cryo or, or forceps would be better than a needle. Gotcha. Well, Gerard, you've been very gracious with your time and uh, you've been very insightful on some of the challenges that we have faced with guided bronchoscopy. And I think um, your study and, and that of your colleagues has highlighted um, the need for uh, better definition of diagnostic yield. And we look forward to um, the papers that are going to come out in the next month or so um, addressing this very important topic. I do want to leave you with the last word, um, uh, a summary, if you will, of um, what you want our audience to take away from your paper. Gerard? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I'm going to read you the last line of the paper, uh, which, again, we did 10 years previous in the last meta-analysis and 10 years of uh, this meta-analysis, so over 20 years. And I'll leave with the last line. The diagnostic yield for bronchoscopy remains stuck at 70%, despite an additional 10 years of, quote, advancements and thousands of additional cases. I think doing more of the same is unlikely to improve the result. And so I do think it, the onus is on us to push uh, the elements of technique technology and patient selection uh, so that we can get the highest possible yield um, in the safest circumstances for our patients. 100% agree. We need high quality studies um, that actually benefit our patients. A very big thank you to Dr. Sildbestri for a really fascinating conversation and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is a chess podcast.